0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of Nebraska Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A Different Trick, Radical Geographies of Deep Space Nine by David K. Seitz. In a different trek, geographer David K. Seitz offers the first full length interpretation of the rich political world building of Deep Space Nine, Star Trek's prescient but often overlooked fourth series, which ran from 1993 to 1999. Building on previous studies of race, capitalism, and geopolitics in Star Trek, Seitz argues forcefully against the tidy bracketing of domestic movements for racial justice from global anti-capitalist and anti-colonial struggles, contributing both to science fiction studies and to geography's rich engagement with critical ethnic studies. Adam Kotzko, author of Neoliberalism's Demons, calls a different Trek a Remarkable Guide to a Remarkable Series. A Different Trek by David K. Sites out this month from University of Nebraska Press. Dig listeners receive a 40% discount when they use the code 6AS23. That's 6AS23. There's a link in the show notes. Click it. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. A specter is haunting today's podcast. It is, of course, the specter of the Communist Manifesto, which I'm discussing with China Mieville. Mieville writes that many critiques of the manifesto and of communism generally are caught up in what Mark Fisher called capitalist realism the bedrock ideological premise that we simply cannot move beyond the system that we live under. It's true, capitalism has proven remarkably resilient, and Marx and Engels did believe that the proletariat would put capitalism in the grave on a rather short timescale. But today, in 2023, industrial capitalism still has not been around for as long as feudalism was. And so, while they did fail to anticipate capitalism's multi-form capacities to stabilize itself through reforms and interventions, it's also still far too early to declare them to have been wrong. In 1848, the year of the Manifesto's publication, Mievel writes, quote, "...bourgeois civilization wasn't firmly established. Rather than the nature of today's late capitalism, It was its earliness that was a complication for Marx and Engels, those fascinated critics. This early capitalist text still provides us with resources to clarify the terrain of struggle, alongside a compass orienting us to beyond the horizon. We can't predict the future. The very notion of late capitalism is itself beset by a certain optimism, an optimism that we must fight to earn. It's up to us and the struggles we build together to ensure that we are indeed living through capitalism's twilight years. There are no guarantees. We here at The Dig are playing our modest part in that struggle by providing all of you all over the world with ruthless criticism that we all need in order to understand the world and then change it. And we can only do that because those of you who can afford to support the pod do so at patreon.com slash the dig. A monthly contribution of any size at all gets you access to our wonderful newsletter by email. A contribution of at least $10 a month from listeners in the U.S. will get you a book or books or a Dig tote bag or a Dig mug delivered to you in the mail. Listeners elsewhere can get Verso e-books this podcast is overwhelmingly listener supported. And it's your support that allows us to put out every episode with no paywall so that everyone can listen regardless of your ability to pay. So if that's you who can afford to contribute and can afford to pay $5, 10 $20 a month, please do your part. Do me a favor, push pause Click the link in the show notes. The minute you sign up, I'll get an email letting me know, and that'll put a smile on my face and help secure the long-term viability of the pod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Oh, and before we get started, I want to announce that we will be doing a live video event with China Mieville, co-sponsored by Haymarket Books, where you can come and ask follow-up questions to China on this interview. The date for that is August 3rd, 1 p.m. Eastern. There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up. Okay, wait, that's not it. One last thing. As we've done for the past few years, we are doing fewer episodes for July and August so I can try to take something approximating a real vacation. So one or two weeks a month, there will be no dig for July and August. If you run out of digs, you probably haven't run out of digs. Please peruse our vast archives at thedigradio.com. There are hundreds of episodes there. Okay, here's China Mieville, a best-selling writer of fiction and nonfiction, and a founding editor of the journal Salvage. His website is Chinamieville.net, and Salvage's website is salvage.zone. He's the author of A Spectre Haunting on the Communist Manifesto. Welcome to the dig. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. Let's start with the question of the genre. What is a manifesto, and how does the answer to that question shape how we should read this manifesto? One one important point that you make is that is that it can be unfair or misleading to evaluate everything in this text as though it's a truth proposition. Many passages. Are, are not so much statements of fact, so much as exhortations, just as we might chant at a protest rally, I believe that we will win, even though we know we might lose.
1: Well, that's exactly it. I, I mean, it's no coincidence that I, I I start the book with a discussion of the manifesto as a form, as a genre, as you say, and and partly that's because I think so much of the discussion around the manifesto in particular, the communist manifesto, has been hamstrung by this, in some cases, I think, bad faith, but also I think just kind of just mistaken way of reading. Now, I I should say I would extend this to all texts. I think that I think that there's not enough in kind of critical reading. There's not enough attention paid to the the forms of texts and the way they're doing the different things they do. But certainly very, very particularly in the case of a manifesto. Part of the point is performance. Performance is exhortation, almost incantation to some extent. There's, you know, the, the, the language itself is very important in terms of kind of rhythm and urgency. It's also recruitment, it's warning, it's an attempt to kind of bolster people. And all of this is combined with truth claims in kind of various ways. Um the, the manifesto form predates the communist manifesto, but it can be quite hard to to think about that, to, to to relate to it, because the Communist Manifesto has become the kind of ur text of the manifesto form, because it did sort of simultaneously inherit, but also transform the form of the manifesto. But I think in your formulation, you say rather than truth claims, and I would maybe want to slightly tweak that. I mean, for me, the key point about a manifesto is that it's doing all these things at once. and. What that doesn't mean and should never mean is saying that it's beyond criticism. And there is a kind of bad faith way of relating to this, which is to say anytime anyone levels a criticism, which is to say, yeah, well, it doesn't really mean that it's doing a different thing. And that's obviously bullshit. Um, But at the same time, it is what's true and what's interesting about any text, but particularly a performative text like this is the way it's doing more than one thing at once, and sometimes with, with kind of contradictory pulls. And so there are certainly places where it does make a, if you like, a claim about the future, which m- my reading is that you know it, it, it really is sort of arguing, like this is the way things are going. And then there are other points where it's sort of saying, if we are not careful, this is the way things are going. And then there's other points where it's saying, if we do our job right, this is the way things are going. This isn't a, a council of despair, quite the opposite. This is to say that, you know, part of the job of, of critical reading of any text is to be able to kind of tease those those different weights apart and to sort of say, you know, the criticism that the manifesto is wrong about X or Y has some has some traction in this case, if you read it generously. But in this other case, it's predicated on a misunderstanding of what this text is doing. And maybe in a third case, both are true you know, I don't think there's any contradiction between saying that a text is doing more than one thing. And you may say, well, you know, it's it's, it's right insofar as this, but it's wrong insofar as this. And there are various places in my discussion of the communist manifesto where I sort of try to say that I try to say, you know, Marx and Engels are saying two slightly contradictory things in the same sentence here. And it's our job to try and understand the weight between the two of them and to evaluate them. But I also the last thing I would say about this is, in case this all sounds very dry, one of the key points of a manifesto, as I say, is that it is performance and it's performance, which is designed in part to bring about what it is describing. So it's not, that the, the way it performs itself, the way it uses language is absolutely vital to its job of kind of sweeping up the passions, not at the expense of analytical rigor, but imbricated with it. And at a very simple level, that means one of the pleasures of reading the manifesto is that it's beautiful. It's remarkable. Whether one agrees or not with some of its claims and its positions, it is just a joy to read this kind of incantatory prose. And Marshall Berman obviously famously really stresses this. But this is something which even critics of Marx will often allow, that this is a a remarkable piece of kind of almost apocalyptic literature.
0: Why? And This question will undoubtedly annoy, annoy some listeners, but I feel like sometimes there's a bit of an arms race over which more complex and obscure Marx text one, one is supposed to read to be counted as a true Marxist. Yeah. And, you know, I, those are great texts, too. But why should people read the manifesto? And why do people read the manifesto? Because I do think sometimes it's sort of, you know, the real Marx heads sort of there's sort of an implicit sense that it's like for college kids or something
1: yeah yeah well, just to establish my bona fides among the Marx heads, you know let me start by saying that as a as a real Marx bro, my favorite volume of capital is actually capital volume two, so you know oh, okay. oh, shit <laughs> deep cut, right um so so and you're right, these are all remarkable volumes. I mean I think I think there's various answers to why the Communist Manifesto is still, uh, worth reading uh, and worth reading even even if you're, you know, not just a crazy college kid. And I suppose, and these all overlap and work together, but there's a question of kind of intellectual and historical curiosity. This is arguably, and has been argued by many people, including enemies, the single most influential 12-ish thousand words written in history. Um, and that's pretty amazing. So simply out of curiosity, I think it's worth looking at it. I think it's worth looking at it because, as I say, at its best, and there are some clunky bits, but at its best, it's an astounding piece of work. It's a beautiful thing to read. And also, uh, the two other things that I think are foremost, I'm sure we could come up with more, one is that it does indeed still embed a certain set of positions politically, economically, but particularly politically and historically, I think. Which are still incredibly powerful. And obviously, as a leftist, you know, you could say, well, I would say that, but the thing is that's to put it the wrong way around. I would say that because I read it and found it amazing, you know, um and and it was one of the things that made me into a leftist, not the only thing, but it is, I think rightly an incredibly powerful text. and it is not just a museum piece. and and I think that part of the job that I'm trying to say is to say that if you, If you read it, you know, certainly critically, but generously and thoughtfully, you may gain, as I did, you know, a great deal more out of it politically and intellectually than you might think if you only think of it as a kind of introductory text. And the final of these reasons, I will say, because it became an increasingly important uh, motivator to me in, in writing the book and rereading the manifesto is because so much of the discussion around it is so utterly boneheaded and stupid, mostly from its critics, but I have to say I don't I don't exonerate all of its supposed friends either. That, you know, when it is approached like like a piece of sacred writ, when it is approached, as you were saying, like as a series of truth claims, like a maths textbook, what you end up with are these various sort of swinging, either generally critiques or occasionally um, pions of praise. Which are just predicated on a kind of magisterial misunderstanding of what this book is and what it's doing, and so simply, I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which, to which one of the motivations for reading the book and maybe even my book is, is a kind of epochal irritation with how stupid and needlessly stupid what could be an interesting and productive and inspiring
0: conversation can be. Let's set some historical context. the The manifesto was published in eighteen forty eight on on the eve of these earth shaking continent-wide revolutions, though though certainly, to be clear, it was published too late to have any impact, real impact on them. Yeah. What was happening in the years and decades leading up to 1848 in, in the wake of these so-called dual revolutions, the political revolution in France and the industrial revolution in, in the UK and elsewhere? Because you write that the manifesto spoke for this mass communist movement that did not yet exist in any real sense. You write, quote, the hubris of speaking for communism as a potentially vast movement is breathtaking, and it would become essentially accurate.
1: Right. I mean, this, this is, in a way, you could say the magics of a manifesto is that it brings about what it claims is the case. And there is an argument that, seen from a certain lens. The Communist Manifesto helped to do that a great deal although i you know i'm being slightly provocative here i wouldn't i wouldn't say that as a document only it had this immense influence certainly not early on later it did but the context was one of as you say um the living memory of two enormous uh, and and sort of world historical revolutionary changes one being the revolution in france which also had you know effects around the world and the other being the kind of more kind of an um, extended process of the Industrial Revolution and the kind of uh, extraordinary change in relations of production in the way the economies and the most advanced economies progressed in the shape and nature of capitalism. So what you have is this, this kind of, you know, accelerating capitalism, but you also have accelerating, I shouldn't say but, you see how <laughs> ideologically interpolated <laughs> I am, uh, and you have this kind of accelerating process of class polarization. Around the 1840s, you have increasing immiseration of poor and working class people. I think it was sometimes called the hungry 40s. And it was generally a time in which not only people on the left, plenty of perspicacious um, bourgeois and liberal figures were saying very explicitly, you know, we are on the verge of a revolution. We are on the verge of a of a, of a political catastrophe, as they would see it, or you know, immense upheaval. Um, that this this cannot stand. And in that context, you have, you've got the kind of larger working kind of mass working class movements, like the Chartists, most famously probably in England. But then within those, you have a kind of far left fringe who are. Developing ideas from, you know, in various combinations, the very radical wing of the French Revolution, anti-hierarchical ideas from kind of uh, liberation-oriented religious faiths, kind of utopian dreams of of previous eras of socialists and so on. And at the time of writing, as Engels would later make clear, this kind of far-left cluster called themselves communists as opposed to socialists, that socialists were essentially the kind of left wing of the kind of liberal uh, middle classes, whereas the hard left of the working classes called themselves communists. Now, this distinction became much less important quite quickly afterwards. So. Quite later, you see Marx and Engels fairly happy to call themselves either, depending on context. But at the time of the manifesto, this was very determinedly a communist manifesto, as opposed to any other kind of reformist or or critical position. And it was the voice, not even really of the far left of the workers' movement, it was the voice of a tiny sliver of the the far left of a, a broader sort of working class Current that was speaking as if it was the voice of an insurgent mass. And then Marx and Engels, in this kind of performative mode, they were commissioned by their comrades to basically lay out their positions. And they wrote this tract that was essentially designed to kind of speak as, as, a, as if it was the voice of the mass and to act as a pole of attraction and to assert certain things as almost fait accompli in a political movement, all on the eve, what turned out to be the eve of this incredible Europe-wide, but to a lesser degree, worldwide revolutionary moment. And, you know, in terms of the impact that it could have had, one of the kind of It's kind of bleakly amusing, which is that Marx always had a... He was dreadful with deadlines. And as you say, this book appeared too late to really impact 1848 at all. By the time it came out, the the, the crest was already on a downward... A downward trajectory. But in fact, it had been weeks that his comrades in the in the Communist League were saying, your book is late, put it out, put it out. And he, you know, in the end, the last chapter is incredibly truncated. And it's this, there's something quite poignant and amazing about the fact that, you know, so committed an activist as Marx, because it was he who did the kind of the last draft, if you like, even the actually existing fact of an actual revolution around him in the world could not quite bring him to really f- meet his deadlines with a book that could have been designed to speak to this revolution happening at that moment. And this is the point at which one says something wryly about how all writers can identify with this.
0: <laughs> it, it is it's the manifesto of the Communist Party. But yeah. we should note that there that party here does not refer to a modern political party. There were there were not modern. Mass political parties, as we would come to understand them at the time, and certainly no communist parties. It was a moment when, when communist and radical politics tended to to take place in, in small clandestine societies, the sort of entity inspired by Blanqui or Babouf, rather than than these open, public, democratic mass organizations. What what then did they mean by party?
1: Yeah, I mean that's exactly right, and I I, I think. <sighs> it's one of the points where one can misunderstand if one doesn't have a little bit of historical context. Um, I mean, essentially, what it's doing is kind of saying the the social force, the organized political force, uh, the sort of self-conscious grouping, the current. And it wasn't too long before the word came to mean something much more like political parties, as we would now understand them, to the point that, my own suspicion is that there are already threads of that within within the word as it's used. So if you like, it was making two different tendentious claims, which I, I would think of as wages against the future. One was that it was saying, you know, this is the voice and the position of this grouping of working class activists that is powerful and meaningful enough in the world to consider itself a party, in inverted commas, in that earlier sense, i.e., you know an actual political social force which was not the case at the time but that was more of a kind of um a sort of urgent aspiration and then i think there are also the sort of the germ seeds if you like of a of a slightly more modern iteration that kind of folds out from that which is a kind of organized an organized grouping, but that's a little bit more distant at this point. My own feeling is that it's both is that there's a degree of cheekiness to it, um, that that Marx and Engels, they're trying to create facts on the ground by making these claims. These are two writers who are who are very good at deploying swagger. You know, there are contexts in which Political swagger, dissident swagger, can be an underrated tactical tool. And in the same way as within the pages of the manifesto, at various points they talk to the bourgeoisie rather than to the workers in this kind of amazingly sort of vinegary way. They're sort of swaggering to to sort of assert what they hope to be true or what they hope to become true, which is that they are speaking for a mass movement. And last point on this, it's worth bearing in mind that they had just essentially won a political battle within the communist league about its direction and they had moved it in a much more in a sense a, a less kind of quasi religious moralist mode into something more akin to what we would now think of as kind of you know marxist socialism moving away from sort of like you know we must do this because of the brotherhood of man as they would have said uh, and more to do with you know historical dynamics and tendencies of of economics and politics And so I think declaring this the manifesto of the Communist Party is also a kind of rolling over of that in a way, kind of flushed from the success of having kind of won over this position, this group to their position. In a way, they're kind of trying to do that with this document on more of a mass scale.
0: Let's turn to the texts starting from the beginning. Marx and Engels write, quote, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter, Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals and German police spies. They continue noting that, that everyone is trying to red bait, tarring political enemies as communists even when they're not, something that's really remarkably contemporary feeling. And then they continue, quote, "'It's high time that communists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, and meet this nursery tale of the specter of communism,' With a manifesto of the party itself why start by invoking the specter mocking their enemies and reveling in their fear in, in the way that they do
1: yeah it's an incredibly fecund and, and and strange beginning and as you say i'm glad you mentioned that i mean talk about history repeating itself um it, it's you know first as tragedy then as fast now as um i don't know very degraded reality tv um <laughs> But exactly, I mean, what? So what they're doing is they're they're doing several different things at once. And one of the things they do is they're diagnosing this fact of red baiting as a kind of go to attack of the right, and that 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 um, their enemies, their class enemies, and the the reactionaries and bourgeoisie are kind of throwing around this accusation and talking about how how terrifying this is and how this has to be nipped in the bud, and. One of the things that Marx and Engels are doing is mocking them for this. They're saying, essentially, these people are telling um, nursery stories. They're telling a horror story, like a kind of like a like a like a scary fairy tale, because they're so ridiculous. But then they do this amazing switchback, which is having essentially teased them, mocked them for this over dramatization. They then sort of take it seriously and sort of speak as the hobgoblin, which they've already mocked as an imaginary creature. And then they're like, okay, so as that spectre, or as Helen McFarlane, the the first translator of the manifesto into English, put it, as the, the frightful hobgoblin, we will now tell you what in fact our position is. So they go from sort of saying they're invoking this imaginary thing to saying. This thing is real but they're misrepresenting it. So speaking as that thing we will now tell you what, what what we think. I think this is where, you know, you've mentioned it yourself, the manifesto form is so is so rich because they get to they get to mock their enemies as being kind of hyperbolic and ridiculous and then they also get to kind of switch around and use their own terms against them all as a kind of rhetorically scintillating way into laying out their political propositions and of course as you you know there there is now a, a i was going to say a cottage industry but it's more like a townhouse industry now in um <laughs> in kind of talking about ghosts in the manifesto because of largely because of derrida's specters of marx and and i do think that that whole kind of uh, project of looking at the manifesto and marxism in general in a kind of gothic mode is interesting but i Maybe as someone who, you know, writes and reads and loves kind of science fiction and horror and so on, one of the things I'm always careful about is is essentially surrendering to fan service uh, (laughs) for myself, you know, so I would love nothing more than to just talk about ghost stories all day. And for that very reason, I am sometimes a bit skeptical of some of the kind of exaggerated fascination with the, quote, hauntology, unquote, in Marx. Like, I, right. I'm certainly not saying there's not a there there, but I'm saying, you know, this is a component, but let's not over exaggerate it. Let's talk about it in terms of other things as well and so on. And, and certainly yeah, in the they were
0: having they were having some fun there. They were, were having some great so fun. much. You could only read so much into that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Marx, you talk about them having fun <laughs> among various other things. These guys are trolls and we have yeah. to relate to that. You know, they would have known how to post. It is, my, it is to my constant delight that they do not live in an era of social media because yes. I think it would be utterly catastrophic and they would be cancelled yeah. so many times and <laughs> and they would shitpost and they would waste their time. Um, but it is true that they are they are trolls of the left, among other things, let me be very clear. And when they get into that mode, they're really good at it and they have a great time. And it's hard not to be swept up in that as a reader.
0: Let's turn to the manifesto's theory of history. Quote, The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Marx and Engels don't mean that there's been this constant self-conscious class conflict throughout all time. What then do they mean? And why Why is it so important for them to state this theory of history, to lay it out right at the beginning?
1: Uh, I mean, I think you're right. and, And you've also pointed out something really important, which is... They nowhere say that this means, you know, at every at every moment of history, different classes have been at daggers drawn with a conscious sense of opposition. And this is important to say because one of the um common criticisms of the manifesto, frankly, of Marxism in general, but certainly of the manifesto, is that you know, Marx and Engels say that class struggle is has always been there. And in actual fact, look, the classes on the whole get along fine. There's lots of cooperation. And This, again, this is just such a stupid reading um, that I find it very frustrating. And you, you see it from writers who should really know better. You see it from, you know, critics of Marx who are not stupid, but for some reason it's very important to them to kind of read this particular kind of claim in a very reductive way. What they're saying is that from epochs ago the dynamic shape of history has been sort of pushed forward at a fundamental level by the relations between those who have power over the productive resources of a society and the distribution that follows from them, and those who do not have power over those things, those decisions, that distribution, and who in many cases, in most cases, are actually doing the work to use those resources at the instruction, one way or the other, however mediatedly, of the ruling class. And that that is a claim about the nature of history not just in capitalism, but in any non-radically egalitarian society, essentially, non-systemically egalitarian society. And it's interesting that later on, when they're commenting on the manifesto, later on, and they're sort of saying, well, you know, this is a historical claim that no longer holds water, ignore this bit, and so on and so forth. One of the things that they stress is like the key contribution that stands the test of time is essentially this theory of history. So from that stem a whole lot of other things about class interests and about how much change and amelioration of a situation can come from within an existing organization of society on that class basis and so on. So they start not with a criticism of capitalism, but with a claim about the nature of history. And then they talk about the specific shape that 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 historical tendency is taking under capitalism.
0: And they specifically zero in on how that sort of class conflict motor of history pushes these more epical shifts from from one mode of production to another, and specifically how feudalism transitioned to capitalism. Quote, The feudal organization of agriculture and manufacturing industry, the feudal relations of property, became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces. They became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. What's this contradiction between, I guess, the, the relations of property and the organization of production that they're identifying as causing this shift? And then, where would Marx and Engels have fit into into contemporary debates over the transition to capitalism?
1: This is such a vast question. Uh, you know, whether or not one can, as a Marxist, or indeed in in any other way, talk meaningfully and usefully about a mode of production um and and the relationship between that and 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 political upheaval and revolution and it's important to say i should say that within the context of the manifesto which is which is a very short very polemical very um performative document i think it would be unfair and unrealistic to say that they kind of lay out a systematic theory of this here but certainly what they what they gesture towards is these structures of societies aren't just thrown up willy-nilly, they're thrown up because of certain relations of class forces. To some extent, in mediated ways, those at the top of society, the ruling class, are gaining certain key benefits from the decisions that they are making that the other people can't make about what to do with the productive resources of society so this is all predicated very firmly on a kind of non and indeed anti-democracy and so when they talk about bursting the fetters of the old mode and so on i mean what they're essentially saying is that you know history and productive technology and 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 so on are not static and they they change and as you accumulate uh, more and more stuff and more and more resources, and you and and you put them into doing the same sort of job as they have been doing previously within this society. There reaches a point where the very organisation of that society is is in a certain tension with the tendencies of the productive resources itself. This is a highly contested claim in various different ways, but that one of the natures of their claim, particularly here, is that. It, this isn't merely a kind of ethical position that they're taking. I mean, merely is doing a lot of work there. I'm sure we'll talk about ethics later. But they're not saying that we need to change things, or indeed that feudalism had to change to capitalism or whatever, because it's a better system, because it's nicer for people, and that's the only reason. What they're saying is that the way the culture, the way the society had been set up, has actually become a kind of a break and a and a fetter and pulling back on the capacities that that very society had put forward, and so there's an internal struggle, and because of the people who've made the decisions who've set up this society. Definitionally, they their class interests are opposed to fundamentally changing this system because it literally exists because because they were in control of it, which means that they find themselves, um, in many cases, kind of opposed to the the overthrow and the rupture that the social forces and the and the productive forces are pushing towards. And this is why it isn't the aristocracy that overthrow feudalism because you know, feudalism was doing a particular job for them, it's a different class uh, or under the leadership of a different class that has a different relationship to these productive forces, which are now being constrained by the very system that originally sort of, you know, set in motion the forces that got us here.
0: You know that the the manifesto is remarkably full of praise for the bourgeoisie, given that it is, after all, a, a communist and thus anti bourgeois manifesto they write quote the bourgeoisie historically has played a most revolutionary part it has accomplished wonders far surpassing egyptian pyramids roman aqueducts and gothic cathedrals It has conducted expeditions that put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production, and thereby the relations of production, and with them the whole relations of society. All fixed, fast-frozen relations, with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions, are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. These are really, I, I think, probably the most evocative and powerful passages in the whole manifesto. Is this praise essentially for capitalism's economic dynamism, the these productive forces that the bourgeoisie has unleashed, forces that at present immiserate, but under communism Would liberate Marx and Engels mock and threaten the bourgeoisie, but they're also just so in awe of them.
1: It's a really excellent way of posing the question. And the passage you read is, you know, as you say, probably not just the most evocative, but to my money, the most beautiful and the most well known passage in the manifesto. And it is Fairly frequently observed that when people first read the manifesto, if they don't know much about it, one of the one of the most extraordinary things about it is how fulsomely and repeatedly Marx and Engels praise the bourgeoisie and have this kind of almost religious awe of um, of its achievements. (sighs) as you know you know you know if you if you've read my book i mean this is something i wrestle with because i i don't i don't mean like you know i mean i i i'm torn i'm torn about this because i think broadly speaking you are right that this is about you know this is a, a about a kind of an almost ecstatic amazement at the achievements of what you could loosely call capitalist society and you know remembering the milieu in which these guys were growing up and the living memory of the early industrial revolution and the changes that had been wrought and so on. I mean, you really are talking about, you know, absolutely planet shaking changes. And I think to some extent, they are just, they are, they are focusing on that and relating to that. And I think it goes a little deeper as well. I mean, I think they're also... That they're kind of both exhilarated and sort of discombobulated by this sense of rush and this sense, something that I I would talk about as a, as a way of experiencing capitalist civilization, This that, that when they invoke this pell-mell sense of rush. And they do see this as both liberating and also atomizing. And they're pretty clear about that. Now, all of that said, it is also my contention that there are certainly places within the manifesto where they do tie this into, if you like, an unearned appreciation for the bourgeoisie itself as a, as a class and as a group of people. And my own hunch and contention is that had Marx and Engels written this document, six months later a lot of this praise would have been far less fulsome and far more specifically about the epochal changes of capitalist civilization, rather than the bourgeoisie because one of the key things that 1848 taught them brutally is that the bourgeoisie as a class, one is not necessarily talking here about individuals, as a class and as an organised social force, will always take the side of reaction against radical change under capitalism always and will always stab the working class in the back now some of its members may do so with tears some of them may regret it but the point is as an organized force it will always do this and i think marx and engels had this notion that like what they wanted was the bourgeoisie to to be kind of promethean heroes and usher in a truly liberal democracy that would allow more space for the kind of uh, uh, the radical left and and the working class movement and what they learned was that this wouldn't happen this won't happen and so there's a paradox which is that this seminal document of communism is actually the last gasp of an excessive optimism and admiration for the bourgeoisie as a class now i would probably go further and say that although i love the the terminology and the and 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 the the way of writing even as a kind of even as a relationship to capitalist civilization in a broader sense while it's very powerful in terms of diagnosing the lived experience of living under under capitalism particularly kind of early capitalism i think it does underplay if you like the other side of things and and you know uh they didn't talk very much in these early stages not enough and not systemically enough about imperialism and about sort of the extractive nature i mean they certainly talk about it it's a, it's a it's a complete it It's a canard to say they don't. But I do think it's fair to say that in certain respects, it's not integrated into their theory as well as it would come to be and as well as one might like it to be. But particularly when one's talking about the bourgeoisie as a class, I think there's almost something tragic to me as an admirer of Marx and Engels reading this document, because what you're reading is the words of two people who are about to get their hearts broken.
0: They write that a key feature of capitalism is that, quote, what the bourgeoisie produces, above all, are its own gravediggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. And I, I think what's key here is that they emphasize that it will be the self-activity of the proletariat, of the oppressed, as it comes into, into collective consciousness of its position and historical role. It will be that force that overthrows the capitalist mode of production. And and this is a major distinction they draw against other currents of of socialism. And th- there are obviously questions to ask here about this presumed inevitability, big questions, but but I think what's more interesting maybe is is that Marx and Engels see it as so critical to identify the proletariat as not only the beneficiaries of the coming communist revolution but also as necessarily its protagonists. What do you make of that? Why why is it the self-activity of the proletariat that's so that's so key for them?
1: It's important to say, having stressed how much they're full of praise for the bourgeoisie that they're also full of you know they're full of piss and vinegar about them and they're they're hardly, you know, un, unremitting fans. But as you say, their vision of change is predicated on the self-activity of the working class. And I would say that this they they do allow, by the way, related to this, they do allow in the manifesto in a way that I don't recall them doing in any other document. That like individual members of the bourgeoisie or other classes may come over to may come to see the necessity of, <laughs> you know, working class revolution. It's a little autobiographical
0: for angles there oh my
1: God, so much. Yeah, the ang- <laughs> the anxiety of class position is, is, is really obvious. I mean, they only do that as an aside. And I think you're right that they are, they are doing this partly out of a kind of sense of nervousness about their own self. Not nervousness exactly, but a sense of their own position. But I think it's an interesting aside because it does stress that what we're talking about here are organized currents. And so on the one hand, there's like a negative and a positive. And the negative is that The the bourgeoisie as the ruling class, as an organized current, or even a disorganized but class united current, cannot overthrow capitalism, cannot even ameliorate it beyond certain very, very limited forms, because they are a class defined by their exploitive relationship to another class within this system, which is... The system that, among other things, replicates their class power. So there is a sort of negative sense, which is you know, you're on a hiding to nothing if you say that the way that you want to change society is to basically appeal to the better nature of the bourgeoisie, because the system doesn't give a damn about their better nature. The system is predicated on a certain way of arranging resources and resource management. And to fundamentally change that would be. To fundamentally kind of eradicate the fact of a bourgeoisie at all, so it, it, it's just a logical fallacy from them. And then, in terms of the, the focus on the on the workers' self activity, this has nothing to do with saying that this is because workers are or the working class, I should say, are are, are are better people. It has nothing to do with saying, you know, democracy would be nice or anything like this. What it's about saying is that if you see the ills of society as as basically kind of most of them as kind of concomitant on this way of organizing production for profit rather than for human need and for profit that is in the control of a, of a certain small group then there's a there's a certain sort of definitional way which is to move beyond that to a society which turns these resources to human need rather than profit. That sense of being organized at a grassroots level, where the production and the distribution are are decided by the very people who are doing it, that's not a nice to have. That's literally definitional to where you are going. Because, you know, how can you organize for need unless you have uh, the people who need the things being the people who are telling you what is needed and if they're telling you what is needed they're essentially making the decisions so this is the positive aspect of radical grassroots democracy and it's it's been pointed out by many people of of on whose shoulders i stand that communism is not about the eradication of democracy communism worthy of the name let's say is not about the eradication of democracy but an incredible flowering of it to a, at a much more systemic level and i think that's important because well, for various reasons, but one of them is that there are currents of leftism, some very well intentioned, some completely sincere, which essentially have this notion that what you can do is you can kind of, with a with a small minority or with a a, a well thinking but small radical group, you can kind of organize society such that you've moved beyond capitalism and. Uh, and towards something that you can call communism worthy of the name. Now, we can debate what kind of societies you can create like that. Okay, but let's shelve that for the moment. But within the model of the manifesto, what that cannot be is communism. Definitionally. And this is where my variably comradely argument with certain traditions of, you know, socialism from above or, or, or non socialism from below would would stem. That this isn't just about a kind of left populist rah-rah. It's about a rigorous relationship to an organized mode of production and society called communism and how it has to be to be itself. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, entirely. It's not just an ethical principle, but it is that too.
1: Yeah. Whatever Marx and Engels may have thought.
0: Right. They describe how how capitalism remakes class relations and really makes class. Quote, our epic, the epic of the bourgeoisie, possesses this distinct feature. It is simplified class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and proletariat. And they they suggest perhaps, though I think, you know, you— uh, unpack this a bit, that, that other classes gradually disappear, or at least become less relevant. And this was a moment, I think it's important to emphasize, that the vast majority of even Europe's population remained rural, let alone the, the rest of the world. What did they see taking shape at the time? And, and to what extent were they right? Could they foresee, for example, the rise of all these sorts of intermediary class forces, such as professionals and managers in, in the 20th century or the the progressive differentiation of the proletariat by gender, race, nationality, yeah. educational and immigration status, housing and, you know, so many different factors. Because I think a key lesson from the 19th and early 20th century seems to be that industrialization alone does not make for the entirety of class formation. It requires politics and organizations, too. Is there a, a more dialectical way to make sense of Marx and Engels' analysis of class formation here that points to the ways that the working class is, is both made and unmade in all these various ways, perhaps co- more contingent ways over time?
1: These passages are one of the ways in which uh, some critics criticize the manifesto, that that claim about you know the two great classes is fairly regularly interpreted as saying that, um, as you to, towards which you gesture that you know the other classes will disappear. As generally stated, this is a bullshit criticism that is not supported by the text. And again, most of those who level it should really know better. It is, it is, it's very lazy reading at best, because the fact is within the text itself, it also talks about other classes. It also talks about other classes and people thrown into different class positions and so on. It talks about the petty bourgeoisie and so on and so forth. So Nowhere in the text do Marx and Engels either say, or in my opinion, mean that what you're doing is you're eradicating all the intermediary classes, all the other classes, and what you end up with under, quote, pure capitalism, which is a chimera, is just the bourgeoisie and the proletarians. They don't say it, they don't think it, they don't mean it. What they are getting at, I think fairly clearly, is that these are, if you like, increasingly powerful centers of gravity. And that therefore, all the other activity that takes place within a society, including class activity, including class activity of other classes, will increasingly be determined by the wrangling of these two gravitational forces and so if you are a member of the petty bourgeoisie or you are you know a kind of surviving aristocrat or you whatever whatever what you can do what you choose to do your field of operations and the pulls on you are going to be increasingly defined by what is a much more fundamental systemic dynamic within this society which is that pole of opposition that's what they're talking about and when they talk about other classes and the dynamics of other classes like when they talk about members of the bourgeoisie you know coming over to the side of the workers when they talk about the social pressures on the petty bourgeoisie and what it might lead them to do they are talking about in the context of this fundamental opposition of gravitational pulls so that's what they're talking about so you know when people say well you know we have loads of other classes now so marx and engels are wrong this is not really a criticism worthy of um worthy of the interlocutor now in the context of a situation in which you still have
0: a very large uh rural population like 80 percent of europe or something at that time of most european countries
1: <laughs> overwhelming and for many the, the majority of whom would still be experiencing life in a way that would be essentially Pretty recognizable to a feudal peasant in in in, in many cases, and so to, to some extent, what they're talking about here is they're making a prediction based on their read of of the class dynamics about what's going to happen in terms of the relationship of people on the land to productive capitalism, the diminution of the peasantry, both in terms of numbers but also in terms of as a social force, and the pull of those of those groups. Within the field of the of the bourgeoisie-proletarian opposition, so they're talking about that, and on the, on those terms, they're I think they're fairly trivially obviously correct. Now, what I do think is true is that I think you have to be able to distinguish what the manifesto says and the underlying philosophy and positions of the manifesto, and you know what Marx and Engels might have expected. Now, my hunch is that Marx and Engels would be astonished and probably pretty appalled in most cases by, among other things, precisely, as you say, the proliferation of these people with, you know, what Eric Odom Wright called contradictory class positions and these, you know, the, the PMCs and, uh, you know, what, yeah, and these endless debates about what exactly is the class position of a, you know, a working class person who owns shares in this company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and all the intermediary levels of, 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 of managerial specialists and so on so i think it is true that like one of the many things that marx and engels probably underestimated as 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 activists themselves was the space for that proliferation of intermediaries and and other classes but the fundamental dynamic that they identified for my money remains not just you know persuasive but indispensable because the point is that all of those other all of those other groups important as they are meaningful as they are humans as they are and we need to understand you know the impact this has on people's lives all of their relationship to society is predicated i think on that pull between those in charge who are the ruling class who are you know making the decisions at an aggregate level about the production and distribution in society and those who are doing the work for them and who are producing the profit without any control over it that is the reason for the system pursuing so so that fundamental dynamic remains as strong as ever and In a sense, if all you focus on is the fact of other classes, you're not doing anything. You're doing the most kind of snapshot kind of vulgar sociology. But once you start to say, how do these classes work, to what ends, for what purposes, Uh, with what tendencies, I don't think you can do that without identifying a fundamental class opposition under capitalism. And that's why I think whatever the intentions and beliefs of the authors, I think the actual philosophical claims made and historical claims made... Uh, hold water very rigorously
0: they argue that the capitalist mode of production tends toward a particular form of crisis one one that ultimately lays the groundwork for its overthrow quote in these crises there breaks out an epidemic that in earlier epics would have seemed an absurdity the epidemic of overproduction these these crises are are then provisionally resolved quote On the one hand, by enforced destruction of a mass of productive forces. On the other, by the conquest of new markets and by the more thorough exploitation of the old ones. What is overproduction? And were Marx and Engels correct to diagnose this as capitalism's signal crisis tendency? Or has the long sweep of capitalist history over the past century and three quarters since they wrote this, has it revealed that other forms of crisis are also at play?
1: Yeah. What they are trying to identify is tendencies and tendencies over the long durée. So to merely point at something that doesn't fit this model and say this exists, therefore they're wrong would be silly. You've got to look at a kind of at an aggregate level. It's also important, I think, to caveat that the economic theories embedded in the manifesto are probably the least developed of the things that it does. So there certainly are economic positions and theories in the manifesto but a i think they need more teasing apart and and they they can more fruitfully be built up with other things that they said elsewhere to get a full picture than the question of history the question of politics and b this is also some of the areas in which i think one can One can relatively uncontroversially, even from within the left, say, okay, well, they were wrong about this. For example, famously, they talk about the absolute immiseration of the worker, the idea that things are just going to get worse and worse on an absolute level, which even they themselves disputed later and which I would stress as an aside they dispute within their own text of the manifesto although they don't fully seem to realize they're doing it and this i mention this because again this is where sometimes as with any text we need to be able to deploy the text against itself and identify the fundamental philosophies within it now what you're talking about is is this kind of paradox which to put it very simply under for example feudalism an economic crisis would probably manifest as you know we have a certain number of goods and we don't have enough of them for everyone who wants them. This is to simplify to a point that would make a historian scream, no doubt. But you know, within the time available, broadly speaking, this is their claim. Under capitalism, what you have rather is too many goods to make a viable profit on of a certain type—a crisis of overproduction—and. As this economic theory gets fleshed out, you also end up with kind of related, inextricable problems such as you know, too many goods, an overproduction of goods that people need but that they can't buy because they don't have enough money. And I think, funnily enough, once you start thinking of it like that, it feels much less paradoxical because that is a situation we see all around us every day because we live in a in an unbelievably debased reality. It is one of the most common things in the world for people to die of hunger in you know markets where there is a grain surplus because they don't have enough money so in a sense there's a combination of two of two phenomena i should say the reason that things are produced under capitalism is not because they're needed it's because they make a profit now if no one needed any of them they would never make a profit so this isn't saying that they're random but it is saying if it's more profitable to make you know torture instruments than to make uh baby formula then the logic of capitalism is to make as many torture instruments as possible, irrespective of what the individual capitalists think. They may, some of them may decry this situation, but the logic of the system is profit maximization. And that means that you will get more torture instruments than baby formula. And then you will reach a point where there are so many torture instruments that there's a glut, and even the people who enthusiastically want to torture their enemies can't afford to sweep them all up. And oh, by the way, we haven't produced enough baby formula. Okay, so so the if you like the a, a crisis of um, insufficient commodities of a particular type is always inextricable from a crisis of overproduction in another sector, and on a kind of localized level, what this also means is what you're talking about is you're never talking under capitalism about a lack of demand. What you're talking about is a lack of effective demand. And effective demand means demand backed up with the money to buy the goods, and that's why you can end up with grain ships throwing throwing their silos overboard because the price is too low to bother going to the next port at the same time as people within a day's drive of the next port are dying of starvation and it says something about what's happened to us as human beings that this is a widely known reality and this isn't and that somehow this is still deemed to be a society that is viable
0: yeah, and this is not an insight, as I, as I think you just suggested with your remark about effective demand. That's unique to to Marx. It's the sort of thing that that Keynes was looking at as well.
1: Yeah, and every time there's an economic crisis. In which will be manifested by people, you know, dying, you know, suffering these exact situations, and piling up of surplus in some areas that are rotting, which then means the collapse of other industries, which means you're then not getting production of other things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one of the things that happens, regular as clockwork, every time there is an economic crisis, is that a section of mainstream, if you like, bourgeois economics, generally liberal but sometimes even right-wing, will sort of delightfully try to scandalize its followers by saying, in fact, we can learn quite a bit here from Karl Marx and there's this <laughs> utterly <laughs> tedious return to Marx that happens every few years because the crises return every few years and and then the you know the 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 more far-sighted or perspicacious or indeed edge lord wing of mainstream economics will point out that this is hardly news.
0: I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my
1: favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com.
0: This episode, like every episode of The Dig, is made possible thanks to our listeners who support us at patreon.com and is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication. You've probably seen a lot of what they've published online, but they also have a beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and is well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 70,000 Jacobin subscribers, developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. There's a link in the show notes. Click it. According to the manifesto, this process of crisis and provisional resolution ultimately leads to some sort of breaking point, quote, by paving the way for more extensive and more destructive crises, and by diminishing the means whereby crises are prevented. Did Marx and Engels fail to see how many provisional resolutions capitalism would manage to conjure up over time? Or maybe is it too soon to tell? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, give it another three, four hundred years. We'll see. Um, no, I mean, I think I think they did. Um, but again, again, let's distinguish between what they thought what they said, and what what they said meant, okay? We have to be able to tease these apart. Now, I don't think it's controversial. In fact, it's been a mainstay of a lot of the socialist movement, perhaps most famously Trotsky said this 90 years after the manifesto, that Marx and Engels would be astonished and appalled by the the adaptability of capitalism. And if there's one thing that I think you know, we on the left have to... Really, really take into our souls. It is quite how adaptable capitalism is, and I think tragically it is eminently possible that capitalism can and will adapt itself to death. By which I mean the death of it and everyone else. You know, I don't think this is controversial. Well, it's clearly controversial, but it's mm-hmm. it's not controversial to me among me. Um, <laughs> um, now, the manifesto itself is interestingly uh, it's it's um it's contradictory on this because you know, they are often accused of being what some people call inevitabilist and basically saying that certain things will definitely happen. There is, I think, a traditional leftist defense of them, which is to say, no, they don't say that these things will definitely happen. I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. I think there are certain things they did definitely say will definitely happen, which didn't happen. What's interesting, though, is that they also said within the same text, they might not happen. And again, they may not have realized this, but they did. So you have, for example, repeated references to like the inevitable victory of the, of, of the proletarians, producing its own gravediggers, the victory is inevitable, etc. And this is pretty clear. And I think it takes quite a lot of um, gymnastics to pretend that they're not making those claims. But within the same text... They then say that, you know, one of the outcomes of like a uh, struggle between classes can be the mutual ruination of the contending classes. You can end up with a catastrophe in which no one comes out on top. And then I would go further and say that within their um, within their very exhortations, within the very kind of eagerness and urgency of the tenor in which they 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 make their writing, there is an implicit sense that this is. This is a deeply, deeply important job. They're desperately trying to recruit people to this. And if you see it as straightforwardly inevitable, why are you bothering to recruit people? It it just doesn't follow. This isn't an attempt to exonerate them from criticism. It's to say that there's a contradiction here. And I think that everything in the manifesto, in the way they talk to their working class readers, says that they are desperate for them to get on board and part of the reason they're desperate for them to get on board is because they're not at all sure it's all going to be okay even as in other parts they clearly do think that the victory is inevitable I, as an aside i don't think this kind of contradiction is unique i think you find it in loads and loads of texts this is that that's that's fine that's that's part of the job of a critical reader but i think they were if you like excessively optimistic about the way that Once you reach a certain point at which capitalism is the property relations of capitalism are standing in the way of the productive capacities of capitalism, which for me would include the capacities culturally and spiritually and in terms of all other spheres, not merely in terms of the production of stuff, there is a sense for them that once you've reached that point, there's a certain inevitability that it's going to be
0: overthrown. In a political and ideological sense, as well. Right. Cuz like one key piece of their inevitable argument is that this this virtue of capitalism is that it's rendered all these forms of oppression, hierarchy and domination just stark and clear yeah. and and thus prone to being delegitimized and and revolted against. They write quote the bourgeoisie wherever it has got the upper hand has put an end to all feudal patriarchal idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors. And is left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest, than callous cash payment for exploitation veiled by religious and political illusions. It has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. And there is on one level, there is an aspect of capitalism that's like this, but on the other, they didn't seem to to take account of, of this coming role to be played by by new and powerful superstructures of the sort of ideologies that Gramsci identified, forces that would mystify and relegitimize capitalism again and again. But perhaps they really didn't exist in that way at the time. And what they really were seeing before them was just this kind of demystifying process underway.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I, I think as with so much in the in the manifesto, what they identify with a kind of polemical and it's worth restating, with a polemical and performative formulation is a real tendency. And there is a real tendency. We have indeed seen at various points over history old school certain kinds of patriarchal traditional um authorities overthrown by the cash nexus, and even within societies or places where they aren't, which in other words is everywhere in the world um, in various ways, there are are times and contexts in which that becomes much clearer uh, and and the sort of, if you like, the primacy of the cash nexus will assert itself in many cases. But what they don't, I think, do is integrate the extent to which the tenacity of some of these either pre-existing or different tendencies of differentiation. And B, and I think this is crucial, the way they intersect with the dynamics and the class dynamics and the power dynamics within capitalism. In some cases, this is entirely cynical and conscious, as in the deployment of, uh, of, of racism, for example, by ruling classes as a way to keep workers on side in certain contexts. But it's also perfectly possible that some of the people kind of, you know, this doesn't have to be a kind of cynical decision. These can be completely, maybe not good faith, but sincere beliefs, but that are nonetheless able to sustain themselves because they are operating within a certain kind of ideological niche within capitalism with its underlying gravitational pulls. And so what they see as capitalism's almost like it's, its capacity to act like historical and social bleach and just kind of efface everything is actually more like a kind of reagent. And it has a fundamental dynamic. um, And that dynamic is, is always there, but that some of these other dynamics will continue to operate, but in new ways on that fundamental dynamic. And I do think they underestimate this. I don't to any extent think that this is something that can't be... Brought within the purview of their system and within and within the purview that the manifesto lays out, but I do think it's 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 fair to say that they have a, a much too one sided vision of capitalism as a as a, as a kind of flattening. The One thing I would say, um, and I'm not trying to pick any fights here, but what you say about the new ideological newer ideological apparatuses and so on, and you mentioned Gramsci. Now I hundred percent agree with that, and I think that it is important to say that um, you know one of the things they underestimated, I think, is the power of ideology and the power of the ideological apparatuses. And in the eras of mass media and social media and so on, these take on very dramatic new forms. and And I, I think that is a really, really key thing here. There is also an interesting discussion to be had here at a much wider historical level. Which isn't capitalist specific necessarily, which is why do certain of these ideological things work in the ways they do? Why do they work on human beings? Now, I don't get my knickers in a twist about this. I don't think this is a, a crisis that we need to like, you know, give up all hope about. But when people sort of say, for example, well, you know, the mass media, uh, you know, the right-wing media, you know, whip up demonization of immigrants, okay, or trans people or whatever. Now, clearly yes they do it's true it doesn't follow automatically like why would that work why does it work and of course there are loads of people out there doing incredibly good work to, to to sort of pick apart the chains of logic and the chains of political antagonism and the chains of interest and so on that mean why these individual things work in these particular circumstances but i do still think sometimes there's a kind of There's a kind of uh, an an unanswered question about the way human beings relate in certain fundamental ways. So, you know, when you look back to, was it in Byzantium where they had the chariot races of blue and Greece? I always forget which city it was. Um, I think it was in Byzantium.
0: Sounds plausible.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> loads of people are screaming at the radio right now or their, 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 <laughs> their, their, their podcast out right now. But, you know, long, long pre-capitalism, like, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago, and you've got like these kind of competitive chariot races with various teams identified by colours. And these became, you know dynamics that led to like riots and deaths and people killing each other because of their, you know, it's kind of like a sort of proto football hooliganism thing, you know? Right. Now, again, there, there, there is a certain right-wing argument, which says, well, that happened, therefore socialism won't work. I am not that guy. And I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, you know, it is surely of interest about, you know, the nature of, 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 of humanity that these, semi autonomously thrown up uh, situations can lead to this kind of violent agonism you know within and against different groups and so on absolutely am i not saying i'm not at all saying like you know racism is inevitable or anything like that what i am saying is i do still think we have work to do to understand the ways that uh, well, to put it tendentiously, the human soul um, acts in certain different historical contexts, and
0: so on, uh, and under certain political pressures. The sort of questions that anthropologists might try to answer, perhaps.
1: Anthropologists, psychoanalysts with a with a historical bent, theologians of whom from whom I'm learning increasing amounts. You know, and and uh, you know, to me, this is a way of underlining what you're saying. You know that that you know these technologies and so on do in a very particular capitalist way an exaggerated, hypothesized, and you know, dramatically accelerated version of certain things that have happened in various different contexts, but now uh, with a new class dynamic behind them and a dynamic that leads to increasing exploitation and oppression.
0: Along those lines, Marx and Engels write, quote, Differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class. All are instruments of labor, more or less expensive to use according to their age and sex. Speaking of reading the text against itself, those two sentences side by side have, I think, an incredibly productive tension. And they don't address race here, though it is addressed in other works. But does this analysis point to something important about the, the way that classes lived under capitalism, where, where in terms of sex or race or other social forms, in that these forms of difference Are under capitalism simultaneously flattened into a money relation, like a worker labor widget. (laughs) And also, at least implicitly here, this is where the tension comes in intensified. The difference is intensified through that very same flattening process.
1: Uh, Yes, I think that's beautifully put. And I think you're 100% right. I mean, it's one of the most remarkable sections. And it is not true to say, as some people would say, that like, race and gender, for example, are lacunae, which are just not addressed in the manifesto, flatly false. What is true is that the observations are not systemically integrated into the theory that is being developed. Um, And that's a shame, because, not because it would have proved the theory wrong, but because I think it would have enriched the theory that is laid out in incomplete form. And this is the difference between the kind of add and stir model, you know, add gender and stir to class politics and class analysis and, you know, (laughs) and a more constitutive and systematic model so that this isn't a question of adding gender to class. It is, as I try and say in the book, it's a question of gender in class and not just because you're saying, according to some kind of obligatory checklist of graduate school, well, you know, I have to mention the following axes of oppression, but because, some of these axes of oppression are, you know, literally systemically having an impact on the fundamental dynamics at play and how they are experienced and how they replicate themselves. You know, so so as you say, as you say, you know, in, in the case of gender, you have them saying capitalism sort of eradicates differences of gender and then mentioning that like different workers get paid differently depending on their gender. And what workers get paid is a key constituent of their entire theory, the labor theory of value that they later, which is kind of present in nascent form, but then gets developed later on in other works. And so, if you're saying that this is, you know, that gender is part of this, then what you're actually saying is not only, well, gender and race and other axes of oppression can be, uh, you know, what's the quote, uh, the modalities by which classes lived, which they are also, but they are constitutive of all of those categories, such as surplus value, at the level of the systemic replication of the system itself. So it's not just a question of saying, well, we're going to integrate these things because they give us a more nuanced understanding of the way people live in class society and experience class society and there's nothing wrong with that that's an important thing to do but it's not only that it's also about saying and beyond that it's going to give us a more rigorous and a better understanding of the way that class society works and replicates itself and makes it profit and distributes its profit and this is what you know one of the one of the things that's very frustrating sometimes about the you know the debates on the left between you know to use grossly you know unhelpful forms that you know kind of class first i've got scare quotes up for the listeners you know class first marxism versus intersectional marxism is that i think sometimes if you allow that these modalities are in fact experience you can say well sure but i'm not talking about experience i'm talking about the fundamental dynamics of capitalism itself and this other stuff is for kind of sociology or psychology or whatever i'm talking about you know i'm interested in marx the laws of motion right (laughs) The point is, if you if you approach this without the add and stir model, if you actually approach it the way, to be clear, as you pointed out, it is indicated within the Communist Manifesto itself, those laws of motion on which you peg such, you know, marx Bro credentials are indeed raced and gendered as part of being class. And that's the point about a nuanced understanding of class. It's not just that you're like... You're not just adding things, you're understanding class and class society better, including those laws of motion, I would say.
0: Yeah, it's simultaneously about the social and economic reality of capitalism. And it turns out they're inextricable because of the ideological alibi for capitalism, race, sex, gender, whatever, nationality. It also fundamentally structures capitalism as an economic system.
1: And as capitalism does with so many things, what it does is it either creates or in in a lot of cases sort of inherits a set of uh, oppressions or whatever. And then even if on a surface experience level, it leaves them almost exactly the same, which it rarely does. But even if it does, by virtue of doing that in a different systemic context, it's doing a fundamentally different systemic thing. The replication of the same in a new context is not the same.
0: People who haven't uh, read the manifesto or perhaps who haven't read it since their youth, might be surprised by how much is dedicated to the question of the family. Quote, the bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. End quote. Abolition of the family, even the most radical, flare up at this infamous proposal of the communists. On what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family, based? On capital, on private gain, in its completely developed form, this family exists only among the bourgeoisie. But this state of things finds its complement in the practical absence of the family among the proletarians and in public prostitution. The bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course when its complement vanishes, and both will vanish with the vanishing of capital. What's being argued here? because they write that the proletarianization of of working class women and children means that that no such hallowed family form exists among the working class. They they do not see the bourgeois family as something to be emulated and and universalized as some sort of like trad normy <laughs> socialists might 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 believe. Indeed, they they assert that it the family, the bourgeois family will be will be abolished alongside capitalism. So what is the family for Marx and Engels and And what does it reveal about their theorization of sex, sexuality, and kinship under capitalism? And I should add that there is a rather trolling and hard-for-me-to-parse line about free love that I think, you know, may relate to this this general argument.
1: I mean, uh, there uh, is—it's very difficult to tell the extent to which they really mean this. Like, one of the things they mean, and I think this is perfectly true and reasonable, is what they're saying with that is they're saying— capitalism doesn't give you any space to breathe capitalism doesn't give you any space to to love each other in the way that you deserve to be loved and the way you deserve to love it you know it, it you know everyone who has got up on a monday morning and wants to spend the day with their kids or their partner uh, or their partners or whatever and is like i got to go to fucking work like at one level this is what they're saying now honestly i think that the i think that the distinction between the bourgeois family and the and the working class family here is exaggerated partly for kind of polemical effect. But what makes it really interesting to me is, in a way, much more so than any other tendency they identify in the manifesto, mostly in the manifesto, what they identify is like, this is the new reality that capitalism lays bare. When they're talking about the family, particularly the bourgeois family, they actually do something different. And what they do is they say, we are now in an era of systemic hypocrisy. We're in an era in which the claims that are made are systematically broken at every point. Uh, you know that you, you you make a claim about you know fidelity and monogamy and so on, and then you have widespread prostitution and bed hopping. They they have this thing about the bourgeoisie you know jumping into bed with each other's wives and so on and so forth. Um, and yes, partly what they're doing is trolling, sure, but they're actually I think doing something really interesting. And they don't flesh this out, but I think I th- I think one of the things this does is get at the way ideology works. There's, there's, a, there's something that Denise Riley says, which is really fantastic, where I, I don't have the quote exactly to hand, but she says, like, it's really ridiculous. This is in her book, The War in the Nursery. She says, like, it doesn't make any sense to think that an ideology only has effect if it is believed like th- this just doesn't work that's not how it works at all and what they're saying in this bit i think is that like as opposed to elsewhere where we're saying these are the ideas you propagate and this is what they do here they're saying these are the ideas you propagate you break them systematically To understand what this means in terms of the dynamic of society, we can't focus on one or the other. We have to focus on... It's not enough to just say, oh, well, they're all liars and hypocrites. The point is, it's important that this system puts out these ideas and then systematically breaks them. Now, for myself, I would relate this to a whole variety of other stuff under under bourgeois society, which is the kind of putting forward of certain liberal ideas which capitalism itself cannot deliver on. But here, what they're essentially saying is, you know, in a in a more direct way, is that like these kind of moralist, sanctimonious ideas of like, essentially, kind of a misogynist view of of, of the purity of womanhood and the family and so on. You purport to believe them, and not only are those ideas, you know, questionable in themselves, but actually the system itself undermines them at every turn. So it puts forward something baleful. And then undermines it in a baleful way, and i I find that I find that very rich. Um, and there's more to be said about that. But in terms of what you're saying about the, uh, you know, what does family abolition mean? I I know this has become a bit of a, a bit of a kind of tussle between leftists in recent years. And I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not on social media, so I miss a lot of this stuff. But I feel like, for me, family abolition worthy of the name doesn't mean like we are going to rip you from the bosom of these people who are your family, who I don't care whether or not you love them, you're a communist, abolish them. Like, it's, this is ridiculous. It, 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 it. And, and in a sense, like, would it help if we said withering away? Maybe they should have said the withering away of the family. The, the point is that this institution isn't given by God and it isn't given by history universally. And even if you think it predated capitalism, under capitalism, it is doing certain jobs and they are not jobs that you want done. And therefore to be a family abolitionist to me is simply to say that this particular version of this institution that is doing these jobs as it has to structurally under capitalism cannot stand and part of the destruction of capitalism the overthrow of capitalism would be about like throwing all these supposed givens up in the air and and saying there's absolutely nothing
0: inevitable about these things, and letting kinship right be liberated from the the the, the constraints imposed upon it by by capitalism.
1: Yeah, kinship, families of choice, kinship. I really don't care what it's going to be like, on the assumption that it's going to be better. Which I think, you know, if you don't follow that wager, then why would you be a socialist? But like, after a hundred years of communism, if someone you know finds that other special someone and they really really want to have you know as a fully flowered human being with uh, in a situation of grassroots democracy they want to have a kind of you know uh, uh what looks from the outside if you like like a kind of traditional family of i don't care the point is it would be doing something very different because the situation would be very different
0: it wouldn't be like so compulsory or compulsory at all
1: yeah and i compulsory or even given because a lot of right. the compulsory things we have we don't think of them as compulsory we just think that how could it be any other way right you know um, right. and you know in a way I, I suppose i mean i hope i do a better job of this in the book but in a day-to-day i'm not very good at having this argument because i simply don't understand why people get so worked up about it and i you know i know there's a tactical question which is you know don't say family abolition in front of the liberals because it scares them which i think is just ridiculous like 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 we're not going to get all kinds of shit thrown at us no matter what we say. But at least I understand the logic of the tactical position. The, the the debates about family abolition, you know, when they get into a kind of a much more kind of vituperative existential question of socialism, I just don't really understand the depth of the concerns, to be to be frank.
0: The point you made a few minutes back about about the ideological Marx and Engels emphasis on the, the hypocrisy. Yeah. Of, of the bourgeoisie. I just want to underline that because it's really interesting. It's sort of hypocrisy is constitutive exactly. of power systems. And I mean, so many examples come to mind from like Ron DeSantis getting married at Disney World or Jerry Falwell Jr. getting into all kinds of swinger type stuff to yeah. to just I mean, like liberal American, you know, power brokers claiming that America has been this force for spreading democracy and freedom around the world. It's sort of constant.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I, the first draft of the book, I tried to go into this a bit more. And to be honest, it, it became so much its separate thing that with a slightly heavy heart, I had to cut it out. But I feel like a lot of the discussion around ideology revolves around, you know, the stated ideas and what they do, or hypocrisy understood almost as a kind of, as a sort of somewhat individualized transgression. Like, not only do these people put forward these ideas, they don't even believe it themselves or whatever. It's like, well, fine. But how do we understand a system that both takes its own ideas very very seriously and also constitutively and systemically creates structural hypocrisy like that's that is something i would like to, to to think about more
0: colonialism and and globalization are key to marx and engels analysis both causally in terms of what propelled the rise of capitalism in europe and also i think in terms of the inherent movement toward the constitution of a capitalist world system. Quote, The East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally, gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known, and thereby to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society, a rapid development. And quote. The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. It's a system, they write, that relies on, quote, raw materials drawn from the remotest zones in the place of old wants requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. And lastly, there's so many good lines on this, quote, The cheap prices of commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls. It compels all nations, on pain of extinction, to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, i.e. to become bourgeois themselves, just as it has made the country dependent on the towns. So it has made barbarian and semi-barbarian countries dependent on the civilized ones, nations of peasants on nations of bourgeois, the East on the West. What's this importance they assign to capitalism's inherently globalizing character, and do they indeed see its globalization vis-à-vis European colonialism as as a progressive force in world history? Because there's some some ambivalence here. The yeah. The essential scare quotes that they put around European civilization Mm. raises some questions about just how civilized the European bourgeoisie are. A lot has been made by by some commentators about the moments of the manifesto that seem to condone European conquest. But others have documented how much Marx's own positions on questions of colonialism changed and shifted As it escalated alongside the resistance of colonial subjects so what is the assessment because there does seem to be this ambivalence where there's both again the awe of the sort of dynamism of the bourgeoisie that's required to lay the groundwork for communism to actually come but there's also at the same time a sense that it is the European bourgeoisie who are the true barbarians
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right. I I I mean as you say um so-called civilization uh, another formulation that they use which you know let's not let's not underestimate quite how radical that was. Like let's not underestimate it the, because there's a lot of ink spilt and to be clear some of it perfectly fairly about certain kind of eurocentric predicates in Marx and Engels and so on and, and 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 that's all perfectly fair but I do think it's worth stressing, I think it's Robin Kelly who stressed this, I've forgotten, that like quite how radical some, you know, the mere fact of using those scare quotes at that time, that's, you know, that's not to be sniffed at. Now, I think it's perfectly fair to say that their positions developed and that their anti-colonialism at a political level Became much more developed and 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 became much stronger and more theoretically fleshed out later on than here. So I, I I certainly wouldn't want to say like there's no problems or there's no or that it's just you know they they had a position that they followed through all the way. That isn't true at all. And the later Marx and Engels are more nuanced about this. At the same time, I I would find it hard to really sign off on the idea that they. They justify, you know. Now that's a loaded term. It's it's predicated on sort of ethical philosophy. I think what is fair to say is that at certain points in the manifesto, they see as inevitable. They 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 don't celebrate the fact, but they do see it as you know inevitable and ultimately. It's an invidious term to say historically progressive. Let's not. Let's try and avoid putting it that way. But this sense that like. Having done this task, we will now be in a better place for global communism, which I think is a position they move away from. And and you can see that even in the afterwards to the manifesto themselves. In later editions, um, they start to entertain the notion of essentially moving beyond capitalism without passing through kind of bourgeois society, bourgeois capitalism based on different premises and so on. But even early on, that sense of inevitability isn't a celebration, and they are never less than clear-faced about the the brutality of what's going on here. So even if at certain moments, there may be a kind of heavy heart sense that this is this is simply something that is going to is going to happen, and we have to get through it so that we can get to a better world. That doesn't mean that they they efface the crimes of colonialism. It doesn't mean that they have any kind of dewy eyes about the civilizing mission in inverted commas of colonialism, which again puts them very far, radically ahead of even the left wing of, frankly, even a lot of the workers' movement at this point. Tragically, even ahead of the you know many of the Paris Communards in 1871, even after the overthrow of the Commune, still supported some version of the civilizing mission. Um, you know, not the, the sainted Louis Michel, um, to whom all love and honor. But like, I think those famous scare quotes, you know, they're not just a stylistic flourish. They're making an important point there. You know, let's let's stress that section you quoted about, you know, cheap cheap prices, other heavy artillery which knocks down the Chinese walls. Now, what might be missed by some modern readers is uh is the fact that. On the one hand, they're making a point about the the, the vigour of capitalism, which by this kind of relentless search for profits means like lowering the prices of commodities, and that's one of the ways by which it spreads into the rest of the world. This is true. But what they're also doing there is making a very direct analogy with the opium war, so-called, by which Britain basically opened up the Chinese market to its opium, Britain, the, you know, the, great, the great drug pusher of the 19th century. And to open up you know uh, one of the key cities to the opium trade that the Chinese authorities did not want in, the British Navy literally used heavy artillery on a city, bombed the shit out of a city, killed loads of people. Now, I think this is doing two different things. I think on the one hand, Marx and Engels in in a highly unusual way, are constantly stressing the sheer barbarity, the murderous barbarity of colonialism. Even if, even if they 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 they, they see it as inevitable, they're not just they're not just they're certainly not justifying or celebrating it, um, and they're pointing out the, the the brutality and murder with which it happened. Now, I would go further, and I would say one of the other things that's really interesting about this, and that could be really fleshed out, is that they see in a way that even many of their um, followers today. I think don't is the inextricability of violence and market relations of you know political state force and a notionally free market when we when they talk about the inevitability of colonialism i mean i think even that has has two faces because they because they have a sense of communism as very much not an ascetic moment they see it as built on plenty this is a this is a not designed to be a kind of an equality down. It's designed to be a, a, a kind of radical grassroots democracy up, not down. Because of that, they they have an analysis where they see communism as as only possible to emerge out of developed capitalism. And for that reason, you can read some of their inevitability talk as saying like that this has to happen so that the world is ready. You know, and and this is where there's almost a certain ethical bravery in their position which is to say these terrible th- you know like we don't we don't deny the fact that these terrible things are going to happen and it's it's a horrible thing and we're going to keep talking about them because ultimately we're going to move to a a, a better position it's let's be clear they moved away from this and it, i think it's wrong but they aren't doing what a lot of people particularly a lot of liberals do which is if you see something is inevitable you make a virtue of it and you sort of try to integrate it into your program so there is a certain kind of bleak rigor about that but there's also there's also merely an analytical thing which is that they are saying they are saying this is what capitalism is going to do this is what's going to happen this is how it works and on that level, they were kind of right. Yeah. Now, they were wrong about a lot of the details. They were wrong about, you know, they, they did have this sense about the kind of flattening down and the creation of a world culture and so on. And they were wrong about that. And they very clearly, you know, they acknowledged that later on and and uh, not even very long later on. I think Marx's positions on these started to shift very early. But it is, again, it's this isn't a question of special pleading. It's a question of trying to understand the model. And, part of what they're doing which can be glossed as quote justifying colonialism is saying hey this is how capitalism works and this is what it's going to do and it's going to do it by racing remorselessly and brutally through all these other countries and all these other nations and it doesn't it's not going to care how much blood it spills now, I don't think that's justifying it at all. I think that's about saying these are the real fruits of your capitalist so-called civilization and this is why we need to
0: move beyond it. Yeah, it's exposing capitalism. It's saying this purportedly free contract of exploitation It relies on this relentless expropriation or primitive accumulation, this violence exactly. of colonialism. This is the actual reality. And there's a lot of other gray lines and other Marx texts about, about that as well. Exactly.
1: Now, I do, I do think we should say that For all that, it is true that there is not enough of a sense of agency of people within these societies that are being subsumed into capitalism under formal and or real subsumption. It doesn't have enough of a sense of the way that that will be an uneven process and the way uh, formal subsumption doesn't mean that you're not really capitalist and it may mean the that you know the changing of certain uh, pre-existing situations nor do they integrate enough a sense in which the ways people might fight back against this the political resistance they can put up and or ultimately you know different roads through or beyond to a different social setup rather than through their model of industrial capitalism so i don't want to come away from this discussion suggesting that this is a flawless passage it absolutely isn't and it's no coincidence that this is one of the longer sections of my book but i do think a lot of the criticism of it is is wrong headed and underestimates the extent to which this was a position based on a an excoriating rage at the brutality of colonialism as inextricable from capitalism
0: There's a remarkable line where where they write that the communists are, quote, distinguished from the other working class parties by this only. One, in the national struggles of the proletarians of different countries, they point out and bring to the front the common interests of the entire proletariat, independently of all nationality. Two, in the various stages of development, which the struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interests of the movement as a whole. I mean, in a way, this is it seems like one and two are making the same point that communists act as a leading and cohering force of the larger working class movement. And the way that they do that is by articulating the fundamental internationalism of, of the communist movement and the workers movement. Why, why for Marx and Engels does, does the global nature of the capitalist mode of production require an internationalist struggle to overcome it? And like, why is this such an overriding priority? Because in terms of things that should be notable, I think, for someone writing at the time is just how how relentlessly universalist this this is.
1: Yeah, this is one of those areas in which we have to distinguish between the rhetorical register. So, you know, famously, when they say the workers have no country or the working man has no country, um, you know, th- this this is sometimes read as meaning that they think nationalism has no hold over the working class now I, i i follow hal draper who rather says that actually what this is is this is a kind of stern instruction to the working class activist right and is saying you know stop identifying with your nation state stop identifying with your country this is not your friend
0: you know or like they say at the end workers of all countries unite
1: yeah absolutely and you know i mean there is a very simple sense in which they see uh, communism and 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 the revolution as necessarily international which is that they 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 also see capitalism that way and they you know one of the things that they are you know that they stress almost from the word go is the the, the dynamism of capital is not only internal it's external it spreads throughout the globe it goes everywhere because of this kind of this dynamic of uh, of maximization and exploitation now i think there's partly an ethical injunction here which is you know what's the point of having a an incompletely liberated world but i think you know at a kind of more sort of systemically necessary level this is this is a question about their analysis of the fact that they don't deny that national economies exist but that they are inextricable from a global system and that that global system is going to be predicated on these class relations and this this accumulation that has been identified And that, therefore, you're not actually talking about a self-contained economic mode of production, a self-contained economic and class system anywhere in any one place that doesn't extend into all the other places. So that doesn't mean that everything has to happen everywhere all at once um, to you know to riff off the film but what it does mean is that you know what we if we if what we're talking here is about a systemic transformation which is absolutely what they're talking about you are necessarily talking about a systemic transformation everywhere because these things are all interrelated and the the system itself is international so the rupture with that system also has to be international and has to be
0: has to be total let's turn to marx and engels theory of the capitalist state quote The executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. What are they arguing here about the connection between the economic revolution of industrial capitalism and the political revolution of liberalism? And is there assertion that the state merely reflects bourgeois interests? This, this of course, would prove to be the object of considerable debate in Marxist theory and, and remains so today.
1: It does remain so. I I I can attest from the um well as if I needed it, but from the somewhat testy, not exactly fan mail I've I've received from um from some quarters about my my deviations from certain classical positions. Um, I think again, the, this document is it is what it is. This is a this is a. This is a polemical and performative utterance. And to the extent that what they are saying is, you know, that the the capitalist state is about the replication of capital and the replication of capital accumulation, and that is pushed by and in the service of the bourgeoisie who war among themselves but are all committed to this question of accumulation, You can certainly understand what they're gesturing at, as opposed, and I think this is important, to those people. You know, that formulation can't be considered in opposition to those people who might have had a desire to like turn to the state to request reforms, to make things better, to sand the rough edges of capitalism, or even do something more kind of fundamental. And what they're, you know, what they're partly saying is it will never do that because that's not what it's for. Now, The formulation also lends itself to a rather reductive and kind of conspiratorial reading of like, you know, sort of a smoke filled room where a certain group of people decide on, you know, a line in a a very, very reductive way to maximize their profits. Now, the moment you say that you have to bear in mind. That exactly happens a lot of the time. Like there are plenty <laughs> of smoke-filled rooms in which conspiracies of capitalists get together to decide, like a committee, their interests and what laws they should they should be. So even that parodic vision is hardly without some traction today. But there are also other modes. There are also other modes of the state. And I think that, you know, it, it's very important to, to to stress that, you know, the the bourgeoisie not only do they not agree on everything they are always fundamentally at war with each other and marx and engels are very clear about this so what can a committee for the for their interests mean given that they're constantly at war it, it, it's always going to you know there's always going to be some who are more pro whatever comes out than others All it can really mean at some level is a kind of a situation to maintain the conditions for the replication of capital. But I'm also not convinced, you know, I I think that to sort of say that once you've nailed that, you've really got down to the fundamental secret of the state and there's not much left to be said by the details. Is just uh, not very helpful. To the extent that one wants to criticise Marx and Engels' model and say, "Well, actually, you can, you know, you can use the state to sort of reform or even get rid of capitalism," I think this is. I, I really have no. I, I don't agree with that. I think, and and that's that sense in which that very simple statement, I can still see some traction for. Because in the final instance, if you like, in the last analysis, it is. I, I do think that the actually existing state under capitalism is indeed inextricable from capitalism itself and that does ultimately mean bourgeois
0: interests interestingly though mark singles do in the manifesto put forward a minimum program what one might call you know maybe uh sloppily and retroactively but non-reformist reforms
1: yeah transitional program
0: yeah uh including the quote concentrating means of communication and transportation in the hands of the state or uh quote a heavily progressive Or graduated income tax. Given that communism is in some ways presented as this fundamentally ruptural program that will not only be a rupture with capitalism, but with all hitherto known modes of production, because it will be the first ever to not have one group oppressing another. What do you make of 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 that existing alongside in the manifesto, these things that look like reforms?
1: It would be the first ever beyond certain kind of non-class hunter right right yeah. right um one of the things that's interesting about marx and engel's minimum program is quite how minimal it is in some i mean some of the uh some of the propositions are incredibly mild um, and really startling i don't think one should get too in the weeds on this in the sense that the specific proposals that they made they were very clear almost immediately and from all the future editions on. Look, don't focus on these specifically. Some of these still work. Some of them were superseded by history. Like That's not really their point. Their point, as you say, is to try to embody non-reformist reforms. By which one means reforms that can be undertaken under the existing situation of capitalism, but that in their logic push so far against the defining logic of capitalism, the defining dynamics of capitalism, that they end up kind of opening up a space and creating a kind of fissure, which make it more likely that further and more radical demands and movements will will push through. So it's kind of a reform in capitalism to weaken capitalism itself. And I would say what you can learn from that is one, you know, Marx and Engels' position on the state didn't didn't preclude them having a sort of day-to-day horse trading relationship with the state. I mean, it would it, it was it was a very it was very rough horse trading, but they certainly didn't do that, which we might call some ultra lefts do, which is essentially sort of say like any engagement with actually existing capitalism or the capitalist state is just propping up capitalism, so not going to have any part of it. They didn't do that. And then I suppose what you can say is. There's the model of the non-reformist reform, and then there's the specific non-reformist reforms. Now, you can say Marx and Engels were wrong about their specific reforms. Their argument was like, these were right at the time and in the context in which we put them, they would now change, they would be different country to country, year to year, et cetera. But the the model itself is one that I find quite compelling because as in the model of trying to push a non-reformist reform because it seems to me to, to cut with the way that people's lives work, the way that the state works in across a variety of different forms and always mindful of the fact that what this can become if you like is merely reformism and also always mindful of the fact that there can always be a sort of reasonable disagreement about what is and is not, a reform that pushes against reformism, uh, and that if people disagree with about that, doesn't necessarily mean that one or other is a traitor. It might be a sort of reasonable disagreement. I find that uh, a fairly compelling model um, of, of, of a way to do, to do day-to-day politics as someone who is committed to ruptural politics, as in a complete rupture with the everyday logic of how we do things under capitalism. To me, almost almost more than revolution, which is not to resile from the word revolution, but but because I find it more productive. The word rupture, which recurs in the manifesto, is the word that that I keep returning to, that keeps being important to me. They talk about the most radical rupture. They talk about, you know, and I, I find that very moving, and I find that very almost breathtaking, because there is this, this paradox of this kind of politics, which is that what you're ultimately seeking for is what you could call a red sublime, the absolute overturning of the everyday, the absolute reconfiguring of the everyday and the construction of and by, as Engels said, an entirely different kind of human material. You're not talking here about us changing what we do. In the changing, we change ourselves. Like The scale of this is so moving, and this is partly what makes them part of a kind of millenarian tradition, almost a kind of religious tradition, which some leftists don't like. They consider it a canard or a slur. I'm fine with that because I think these are very noble aspirations. But this red sublime, how do you do it? Progressive income tax you know i mean talk about <laughs> bathos talk about underwhelming you know and that if you like is the lived reality but it feels the, real if it right? feels real as
0: someone who does political organizing exactly
1: right. that's what I exactly <laughs> this is like like what it is to be uh to be a revolutionary socialist to be a communist is to spend your life in this kind of occasionally joyful mostly melancholy oscillation between like these like ecstatic senses of alterity and potentiality and the most tedious day-to-day minutiae of like, you know, drab little reforms because there's no other way to do it. So I find it funny and I find it sweet and I find it poignant and I find it moving and I find it convincing.
0: Let's talk about what communism would would look like, which, which Marx and Engels are famously rather vague about. Quote, in the place of old bourgeois society with its classes and class antagonisms, we shall have an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. Is this where we see a move from Marx and Engels, the the cold-blooded analysts of history, to just a fundamentally ethical position?
1: Well, Marx and Engels throughout the manifesto and indeed beyond are fairly adamant that they don't have an ethics. This is not an ethical position. They don't now, And as you'll know, you read the book. I think they're wrong about that. I think mm-hmm. – I think they absolutely do have an ethical position. Normative claims are being made. <laughs> right. And it's not only an ethical position. And also there's absolutely nothing wrong with having an ethical position. Normative claims should be made, you know, is, can indeed imply ought under certain circumstances and so on. So, you know, so on in terms of like the actual question of to what extent this is an ethics, I, I think it is. And I think that in their eagerness to to differentiate themselves from, if you like, moralistic socialism they somewhat bent the stick too far and sort of said you know there's no such thing as morals you know and you know and also there's an edge lord thing they're like mm-hmm. you know you keep talking about ethics man we don't care about ethics and it's like okay <laughs> all right calm down um but so i think they do have an ethics and i think you're absolutely right it is not an ethics of equality that's not what concerns them it's not that what it is is an ethics of liberation it's an ethics of full human freedom so equality is in the service of that rather than the other way around And so yes, so, so, so their ethics of a horizon is an ethics of a liberated humanity, which comes with a set of concomitant claims. We are not liberated people. I agree with them. It is not impossible that we could be liberated. I agree with them, which doesn't mean that everything is therefore fine and perfect. No one is saying that, and that it would be better to be liberated than not be liberated. In terms of what that means for a vision of communism. I'm going to follow Marx and Engels and refuse to speculate. And the thing, well, actually, it should be said, Engels got a bit agitated with Marx, and he asked him to spell out a couple of times. He was like, "I really wish you would describe communism more, because people keep asking for it." And Marx wouldn't do it, and he, you know, famously said he wouldn't, you know, uh, preempt the cookbooks of the future. For me, and I, I, I am well aware that. There are people who I, I would stand in comradeship with who really disagree with me on this, and I'm that's fine. This is a legitimate debate. For me, I have no problem with like speculating. I have no problem with like dreams of what might be nice of what one would like and so on. But I do have a an analytical problem with extrapolating that into not even just blueprints, but kind of trying to formulate how it might work. And the reason for that is not out of a kind of cowardly evasion. It's it's to do with what I was saying before. It's to do with the red sublime, you know, by which I mean, you know, our whole minds are, are are constructed in the context of the reality we live in. We are creatures of racial capitalism, whether we oppose it or not. That's not the point. The point is, our structures of opposition, our structures of feeling, are all predicated on it. One of the wages of being a communist. Is that that doesn't mean we can never escape it, but it does mean that in the escaping of it, in the fissures, in the fissures within, you know, finding those fissures within our own mind and within society and pushing through them, we would transform ourselves, as Engels says, just as much as we would transform society and we would become material capable of living in a liberated world. We it would be the process of liberating ourselves that would make us fit to live in the world for liberated people that we would make. And what that means is that it is literally impossible for us to really, really imagine communism, not because of some kind of fiat of God or something, but from a very simple point of social psychology, which is that it is beyond our ken. And it is in the process of getting from here to there that we would be able to imagine what we need. So, I can say in very abstract terms, this would be predicated on a liberated humanity. It would not be predicated on a very, very much kind of asceticism. It would be predicated on a, a reasonable proliferation of like comforts of food and shelter and so on. What it would mean culturally, what it would mean politically and so on, I don't know. And I'm aware that when I say this, some people feel like it's just a real evasion or whatever, that it's just ducking the question. But the thing is, I think this kind of model of things happens all the time in the same way as, you know, someone who is very prejudiced against a particular group, someone who's very homophobic or whatever, and might think, you know, you think about the famous cases of the minor strike in the UK and the support of the minors by, by large sections of the queer community. And in one year, there might be certain people who would have very strongly homophobic opinions partly because it would just be unthinkable that they would believe they know anyone gay or that you know or that there's anything uh, other than quote disgusting about being gay or whatever it might be and then 2 years later in the context of having well struggled together with certain people in the context simply of meeting people in the context of changing their own relationship to their own politics and the politics of other people uh, stand in comradeship with you know, with ACT UP or whatever. This is not rocket science. It happens all the time. And all we're talking about is doing that on a mass global systemic level. So it is out of fidelity to the necessity of a better world that I refuse to speculate too exactly about what that would be. All I need to know is that there's a chance that the effort could work and that there's a reasonable chance it would be better than this. And let's look the fuck around us. I think that wager is worth taking.
0: Well, China Mievo, thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: China Mieville is a best-selling writer of fiction and nonfiction, and a founding editor of the journal Salvage. He's the author of A Spectre Haunting on the Communist Manifesto. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after reminding workers of the world to unite, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes typically every week, but a little less often during July and August the dig was produced by alex lewis our associate producer is jackson roach we're recorded at wbru in providence music by jeffrey brodsky our communications coordinators are tamuz frankel and sylvia atwood our senior advisors are Theoria, Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or some other such platform, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. Also, if you know some way to stop Spotify from shadow banning us or whatever the hell is going on over there, uh, please do help. It is impossible to find the dig on spotify anyhow those reviews help introduce us to new listeners so to spreading the word to your friends please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong even a few bucks a month is huge